Welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Can, author of the number one bestseller, Guide to Healing Chronic Pain, A Holistic Approach. And my intention is to help you manifest a life of your dreams, whether it's radiant health, uh, prosperity, loving relationships, or simply peace of mind. Thank you so much for joining me. And my website, if you'd like some free gifts, Light Warrior Empowerment Package, is karencan.com forward slash free gift. And today... We are going to be talking with Harry Armitage. He is the learning difficulty expert. He has a passion for helping bright kids rediscover a love for learning. And this is a perfect topic because uh, I have, um, have been speaking to people from all over the world. So many are moms, and so many of these moms are really struggling with having you know, a, a, a whole bunch of guilt about the kind of thing they're teaching their children if they're not teaching them enough and the children are now reactive. And as so many of my uh, clients are moms that are sensitive, which means their children are sensitive too. Um, we've got moms with, you know, kids with uh, Asperger's and uh, diagnosed, you know, autism and um, super sensitivity, autoimmune diseases, fibromyalgia, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so wouldn't it be great to be able to know how to deal with this in your everyday life in a practical way. So Harry is an expert with uh, learning difficulty, and his website is listenforlife.com, which I absolutely love that name. So listen and the number four, and then the word life, all one word, so listen, listenforlife.com. And when you go there, there's actually a quiz. So you can see just where you're at as far as the listening scorecard. You know, it's funny because I'm much better at teaching other people how to listen than necessarily teaching myself, but I have to, you know, take my own advice. Uh, and, and listening is, is so incredibly powerful. In fact, when I've uh, spoken to, you know, mentors, you know, some of the light warriors uh, and about their children and some of these teens, which are my favorites, is the, is the teens. So much of the problem has to do with uh, us trying to fix things, you know, as parents, instead of really listening to what it is, um, because sometimes we're too afraid, uh, you know, of the answer. So I'm so pleased to have Harry on the show today. Hello. Welcome, Harry. Hi, Karen. So nice to be here. Yes. Oh, so nice for you to be here with us. Uh, this is really exciting. We are we're going to be talking about how a parent can be like a detective. This is kind of like do 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 do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's and, and important. I, it yeah, is it's important. It's, I I encourage every mum to be a detective, and what that means is to understand the why. Mm-hmm. I yeah, you the know, why. I love that. Now, now, Harry, how did you get into this in the first place? I mean, I, I'm sure you didn't grow up when your parents said, Harry, can you be a learning, you know, a learning <laughs> expert? Probably not. So what's your I story? Think I, I think I wanted to be a steam engine driver when I was a young <laughs> But I grew out of that. And steam engines disappeared, so I lost my career. Well, we, we, we have three lovely children who've all left home now. But when my middle boy was... 18 months, we were renovating our living room and we had a ladder up in the living room and he climbed up the top of that as kids do and he fell off quite a long way and landed on the side of his head where the speech center is and he landed on a sharp plank and he, he acquired dyslexia. We didn't know that at the time. I knew nothing about neuroplasticity or 
neurobiology or anything like that. But when he entered school at five, it was clear that he was not compliant and he, we discovered later down the road that he didn't understand why he, he didn't understand the joy of learning. He didn't understand why he should learn. Mm. And then he dropped out of school and so on. That's another story. But um, I then got very sick and I was trained as an economist, classical economist, and I kind of got bored with, you know, the models that we used. Um, I worked in a lot of really cool places, but underneath every economic underneath every economic headline, underneath every economic forecast is the deadly phrase, if we assume that. Because mm. the real world is so complicated, we have to assume stuff away. And the bit that interested me in, the, in economics was training new graduates that it's important for them to use their, their ethics and their morals to work out which assumptions to use because that drove the, um, the, the results. And I looked at what I was doing and thought, well, that's ba basically that's what turns me on. And the rest of the stuff, it, it, you know, I mastered it, but it wasn't, it wasn't firing me up. And then I got really sick. And I never took a day's sick leave. So I had about a year's sick leave. And I was off sick for a year and I wasn't getting better. I was living mm. in the tropics and I had a trop tropical ulcer. And a long story short, I, I was under three specialists and many alternative health practitioners. All conventional medicine could do for me was to keep the wound sterile. It wasn't addressing Whoa. the cause. It was just looking at the symptom. And I was offered a couple of really confronting choices. One was um, amputation of my leg. Mm. And the second one was death. And so I was up against it. And when you're put in a position like that, I was 52, um, you reevaluate your life. And I was um, ended up in a clinic, which with a whole lot of other alternative health practitioners got me back to health. And I was sitting there and I was looking at what they were doing. And a bit like the grass is greener. I thought, hmm. my goodness, what they're doing is so worthwhile. They're changing children's lives here. It's got a human contact that really resonates with me. And so I said to the clinic principal, you know, we had a discussion, throw, he, he threw away a line, you know, if you ever need a job, maybe there's one for you here. And then I have a good CV, a good resume, I have first class honours and worked in good places, but I couldn't get an interview. And I don't know whether you've ever been in the position, Karen, where where you're trying to do what your head says, but nothing's flowing. Mm, that's right. The universe is helping us out by exactly. giving us the closed door. <laughs> that's right. So the universe had thrown away my work, had said to me that I needed to move out of the tropics down into a cold climate where I live now, and given me this opportunity of working in a clinic as a, as a clinician. So, wow. I, we had a discussion. I agreed to give it a go. And I went over to the US and learnt my craft in sound therapy. And then I've been working in that for 15 years. That's how I got into this field. And I love it because I love kids. I love positive change and I love music. Those three things came together for me in a wonderful way. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and you know, I, I don't know about, you know, where you live, but where I live, uh, unfortunately, they're just aren't a lot of opportunities for children 
to have services like that. Like, this is so special. They just get whatever they get in school, unfortunately. Yeah, the problem is that the, the pharmaceutical industry, which is, you know, very worthwhile and does lots of good things, has raised the bar in terms of providing evidence. They make such massive profits that the standard of evidence has now been raised and we need peer-reviewed studies for many parents before they believe an intervention is worthwhile. And the problem in the industry that I work in is that we don't have the margins to fund those studies. And so we, we have to do it in other ways. But it doesn't have the credibility of, you know, the published peer-reviewed studies in the medical journals. They're, they're very expensive to mount, you know, probably quarter of a million to a million dollars to get a study up. Well, yeah, that's right. And so it, it ends up being, uh, well, Chinese medicine is sort of like that in, in terms of, you know, everyone's an individual. And so it's very, very difficult to do a study where you treat everyone the same because that's not Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine is very, very specific. You know, each person gets a slightly different prescription. Um, and, I mean, there's nobody out there that can fund that. I mean, that is that would be so crazy to to try to do that so all but but in in terms of Chinese medicine there's like thousands of years of anecdotal evidence um, so at least you know in your craft that you're doing you see children getting better you see families being happier so that's you know that's worth its weight as gold that's right yeah so it takes time to assemble this, the studies and that's that's the that's the Western approach, using the mind to sift through everything. But what's, what I love most in the mums that come to see me are the mums that have been told not to worry, Pat, Pat, you're only a mum. You know, he'll grow out of it, she'll grow out of it. But I love the mum who comes to me and says, Harry, I feel something's not right, but I don't know what it is. Mm. And they're trusting their they're trusting their intuition. And I salute them because they've got courage to follow what, what their body's telling them. And of wow. course they're right. They know their kids better than anyone. Mm, they're so lucky to have someone like you who really <laughs> honors that and listens to them. Uh, and, and I remember teaching that to my medical residents uh, when I was training them. I said, look, if you've got a worried mom at 3 a.m. in the morning and you think it's just a cold and they're still worried, I said, come in. See them in the ER. Because there's something about it, you know, if mom's worried, just just do it, you know, because you, you never know. It might be meningitis, it might, you know, if mom is not comfortable. So that's great that uh, you're honoring how they feel. And it's important to follow your intuition is important because we've, we've got a heart, we've, we've got a head and a brain, but the intuition assimilates all the information around us and some of that doesn't hit the brain some of that doesn't hit the heart some of it is subtle it's about you know when we meet somebody for the first time we instantly get a feeling about whether this person is a good match or not mm -hmm. a good match so if we go to buy a car for instance you know and you know the husband's looking at the nice red mustang oh yes i want one of those and, and the wife is saying, oh, I don't trust the salesman. Listen yep. to your wife. Listen to your wife every time. <laughs> because oh, she's picking so up true. on stuff that is below the surface, but it's also very important. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and do you find, at least in, in your practice, that um, 
because of you know who you are, what you've gone through as a parent, that the people that you see um, are very are they pretty open to what you have to provide, or or is it do you find that there's some tentativeness because you're not a mum per se, you're a dad? I mean, do you find any you know no bias? like a current. Karen, I, I mean, you might have seen you, I think, were you in Hawaii? I can't remember. No, not no. yet. No, <laughs> oh, like, I actually love women. I've always gotten better with women. I empathize with them. Um, I like their nurturing, their softness. And so, no, if, once we meet, it's fine. They can see that I'm on their side. They can mm. see that I've got their child's interest in my heart and... And they see how I interact with their children. Now, sometimes if there's been a script run by the school or by the pediatrician or by the husband, it's like peeling an onion a bit during the first meeting. But then when they get to know, like, and trust me during that first meeting, you know, it, it, we become friends. And there are usually tears somewhere in the assessment because... It, there's a there's a journey that the mum has gone through, and she's made a baby, and along with that have come a whole lot of hopes. And then when the child starts struggling at school or socially or at home, th those dreams get slowed down and messed up, and that's really sad. And so she's feeling sad, and there's always the heart involved with your child. So there's always there's almost always tears that come out. So I have lots of tissues in my room, <laughs> and, and you know I honour that because that is a reflection of her love. Mm -hmm. and, and then we get into the real stuff, and oh, I assess the beautiful. children. And I, I have no interest in the symptoms, Karen. It may seem strange, but if if a child comes in with say a difficulty around, I don't know, reading or writing. Or maths, that's not my concern. What I'm concerned about is why that occurs. Mm, so that's where the whole being a detective thing comes in. Exactly, exactly. So it's about asking mums to walk in the shoes of their children. And this is quite hard. So one of the questions I ask people whenever I get the opportunity, and I can ask you now, Karen, is there a good reason for your behaviours? Well, depending on which one, I'm absolutely there are various different good reasons for my behavior. Exactly. Do you, do you have yes. any behaviors for which you don't have a good reason? I can't think of one. <laughs> exactly. And why would you be different from your child? Right, right. So there's always a good reason. Now, my curiosity gene wants to know the reason to uncover what that reason might be. So, for instance, one of the things that I, as a, a dad, used to say to my kids when I got upset with them and they would push my buttons beyond breaking point, as kids, you know, do, like guided missiles, I'd say to particularly my middle boy who had the learning difficulty, oh, Lucas, when, when I'm talking to you, I want you to sit still and look at me. And how dumb was that? <laughs> because I didn't understand what he was going through I mm. was not walking in his shoes mm. I now know that when kids are restless or when adults are restless 
I mean, if you interview somebody face-to-face, -face, Karen, um, and you notice they start fiddling with their pen or fiddling with the phone or whatever, you know, they're being restless. It's in a socially acceptable way. But why are they doing that? Why is mm -hmm. the kid moving and restless? It's because they're dopamine deficient. And when mm. they move, when they move their body, even fiddling a pen is enough, they'll move the brainstem, it releases dopamine, that supports their attention. So they're intuitively self-medicating when they do this. And if I ask somebody who I'm talking to to sit still, that's going to, and they're dopamine deficient, that's going to reduce their capacity to pay attention to what I'm saying to them. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. And how, how many teachers and how many parents require us to sit still? I mean, it's not the right thing to do if we want them to learn. Well, it doesn't seem like a natural thing, and <laughs> um, it's almost robotic. Um, and I know some of the sensitive children now, you know, that more and more of them being born, um, they rebel um, against the school system because they, they lack nature and they really need it. Um, and the structure, if they don't resonate with the structure, doesn't make sense to them why things are the way they are, then they rebel as well. Of course so, they do. Yeah. But there's always a good reason why. Now, if you've been told by the teacher that um, it's not acceptable for you to wiggle about and get up and walk about and all of that, then that's going to be, you, you know, the overriding aim of, what you're trying to do and if that then undermines your ability to to understand what she's saying then you're going to be bored and if you're if you're bored particularly if you're bright and sensitive you're going to do one of two things you're either going to withdraw and daydream and go off into fairyland or you're going to disrupt mm -hmm. pretty much the two character driven choices going so going back to my example again of how badly I parented, um, you'll notice that when you talk to people, they often will look away, particularly if you ask them, you know, quite a probing question. And the, and the reason they look away is not because they're being rude, not because they're trying to annoy you or piss you off. It's because they can think better. They can use their frontal cortex to assemble an answer by looking away because they reduce the visual processing load. So by not having to look at you, they can focus on what you've asked them to do. Mm, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So, you know, there's so much culture, there's so much embedded in our culture that if you don't maintain eye contact, it's rudeness. That's just in our culture. But it's not, it's not a helpful structure for someone who's at risk of overloading. Oh my gosh, this is so golden, Harry. <laughs> this makes so much sense. I never had anybody say it to me that way. And that is so true because uh, being a sensitive, um, there's so much energy coming through the eyes that it's almost distracting, you know? Yeah. Like I can't hear you because it's like I'm feeling all this stuff, you know? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, wow. Wow. So if, I, if I'm assessing a child and I ask them a simple question like, what do you like doing best at school? Now, school is a really tough place 
they won't be able to answer that at all. Right. They'll just they'll just sit there and start fiddling and they'll look away, they'll look to mum. Mum will try and intervene and I'll have given them instructions they're not allowed to do that. Right. You're not allowed to actually rescue your, your little darling in this situation. And I'll just leave it and there will be a long pause, maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds, 60 seconds. It's, it's agonising. It's horrible. <laughs> I want to dive in and, you know, and <laughs> so... If they can't answer a simple question like that, well, that tells me a couple of really important things. Firstly, it's it's a war zone out there for them. It's tough. Mm. That's the first thing. Secondly, they're not able to express their feelings. It's locked mm. inside. And that's useful to know too. Um, and the looking away and the fidgeting. And, and if you're with somebody and the fidgeting starts escalating, it's really useful just to notice that. Put on a hold that you want them to sit still. Just watch. And and if in a particular part of an engagement you notice somebody's fiddling increasing, that's an indicator they're under increasing stress. They're under mm. processing stress. And so that tells you that you need to tread more cautiously there and that there's a few potholes there for them in that topic and that they'll need reassurance. So understanding that part of being a detective is understanding well when the restlessness, when the need to move increases, that's a sign of overloading. So if I walk in their shoes, what would, what would I like to happen to me when I'm feeling overloaded? Well, one of the things that's helpful is, is to simplify the environment. So if the TV's on, let's turn it off. If the other kids have come back from school and they're making lots of noise, let's move away from them to a quiet environment. Mm. And then maybe I'd like a little bit of reassurance. Now, reassurance is great. Uh, you know, a hug, a touch. And it doesn't matter who it is. We, we can touch people, you know. If I've got a mum and she's looking really overloaded, you know, of course I can touch her on the shoulder or something like that. If I know really well, we'll have a hug. Every touch is really important way to show to show love, and mm. receiving that love will will calm calm us down and get us away from the fight and flight that we feel when we're in overload. Oh yes, that is so true. I've noticed, Harry, that um, you know, I mean, this has been over many years. I don't do a lot of pediatrics anymore, but um, sometimes, the, and maybe it is because you know they're at the doctor's office. But it seems like sometimes the moms are so busy trying to fix things, you know, yeah. trying to make their kid better. Do you want to eat? Do you want to sit down? Do you want a sweater? You know, are you going to be okay? You know, all, and then they go, ah, you know, they get so annoyed. <laughs> Yeah. At, at their mom um, because they're, you know, I mean, it's okay to ask questions, but it just seems like we're not actually reading them very well. That's true. And also trying to fix the kids, it's like, um, it's also really important to let the kids make their own mistakes mm. and to learn their own lessons because that is the only way we learn. But if the child's in pain, if the child's in overload, you just need to understand the why and, oh, I mean, you know, you talk about going to the doctor. Oh, I went to the hospital the other day. There's such 
such awful places. They're so uncomfortable. With the, I don't know who designs hospitals, but I don't think they've ever been in one. <laughs> That's another topic. Eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, unless you're Dr. Patch Adams, somebody who was yeah. very famous here in the I States. I love Dr. Patch the... Adams. Yes. yes, I used to watch his stuff. <laughs> Oh my goodness, so my cortisol level raises when I go near a waiting room. Mm. <laughs> mm. White coat syndrome, triple. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And when the kids, you know, they're, they're, they're made to, uh, not purposefully, of course, you know, but they're made to feel like they're abnormal, they don't fit in, uh, and they don't, um, because they can't pay attention, because you know, they don't learn as quickly. And so by the time they come to my office, it's like, hi, can you please fix my kid? You know? And Mm -hmm. so we have to like re-perceive it in a whole different way. Um, And and, and so the kid doesn't feel like it's it's their fault. Absolutely. So, So if I go back to my curiosity gene, if I can find out the reason why a child is overloading in a particular situation, then I can tell them, actually, you're a really bright kid. I like you because you're bright and sensitive. You're one of my fave, you know, you're an A-grade client for me. I love you guys. And it's not because you're not bright. You are bright. I can tell you that. And I'm going to tell your mum now. She ticked the questionnaire, you're average, and she was wrong. You're not average. You're above average. And the reason why you are not doing so well at school is because of one of these sensory processes. Either you're not... Uh, and so I'll check their hearing. I'll check their listening. Mm. And listening is about what you do with what you hear. Mm. And for instance, how many times, I mean, your listeners, I'm sure, will know this, where you walk past your child's bedroom and it's a mess. Maybe you can't even see any of the carpet. It's so littered <laughs> with clothes or toys. And you say to the child, could you tidy up your bedroom? And surprise, surprise, nothing happened. Mm. Well, I mean, the child heard you, but they weren't listening. <laughs> or you may say to a younger child, um, you're crossing the road with them and you'll say, you know, hold, hold my hand and the child doesn't, doesn't hear, but the child thinks that you're being angry with them. But in fact, you were, you, you were, you were emphasizing something that was important for their protection. So they're misconstruing the way you're saying the words to them. Ah, often, like often. commanding you to, yeah. Yeah. They they think a polite a firm polite request is being told off. They misconstrue mm. that. Or in the playground, that another child may say something to them as a joke, and they misconstrue that as teasing. Mm-hmm. So they're struggling to engage in the playground. Now I I always ask this question of of children, if there's any issues around the auditory processing, I ask them. Think think about when you're in the playground with your friends and you're surrounded by your friends and they they laugh. They're all laughing. Do you know why they're laughing? Hmm. And it's so common to hear the answer, no, I, I don't know why they're laughing. I never know why they're laughing. Hmm. And then we'll talk around how this makes them feel. But um, the reason they cannot decode the humour in playground and that's probably one of the most demanding environments any child or any adult can be because you you don't get any second chances Um, and it's noisy it's sophisticated interaction 
um, it, it's quite demoralising. It undermines it undermines the ability to make friends because you misconstrue when people are teasing you and when they're not, and and so on. And it's it's about understanding that the way in which words are said to us. It's about understanding very very fine differences in pitch because. Humor is delivered. The punchline of a joke is delivered with pitch, with a pitch change. Right, right, right. And that's a skill that some kids don't have. It's mm. a skill that some adults don't have. And and the genesis of this skill, well, this skill can be lost with a trauma in childhood, as most things can be. And most things, I think, can be traced back to to childhood stuff and you know a trauma in childhood could be something like well a difficult birth a traumatic conception um, chronic ear infections a head trauma losing a teddy bear not keeping up at school you know there's a whole lot of things that can be a trauma for a child doesn't need to be a trauma for an adult but it's a trauma for the child in their life and if you get a trauma in in childhood, what that can do is it can arrest the normal development of the way in which we um, discern different pitches and different tones. It's it's um it's a defensive mechanism in the body, so that if we're, for instance, in a household that is full of harsh words, that sometimes happens between the man and the woman. Um, that's we as a young child we can't go anywhere. We've got nowhere to go. Right. We're in our home, so we just shut down our perception of those harsh words. And that can stay with us for life. Mm. Um, I remember the first woman that I... I mean, I was trained in this in Denver, and I thought, wow, this is pretty pretty out there. Um, and uh, so I thought, okay, well, it seems to be... You know, the guy that was training me was a psychiatrist. I thought, he's, he's, he's pretty... Um, pretty He's run a hospital ward. I'm going to trust him if he says this is right. Um, and the, and the first um, adult that I I had my kind of eureka moment about this was um, I, I did a, a listening assessment on her and, and uh, I was I saw that she could only do two or three pitches. So I said to her, "Well, what happened to you around the age of three? And this woman was 65, and she looked at me and she actually went white. And uh, there was quite a long pause, and then she said, I don't know how you knew to ask me that, Harry, but yes, when I was three, I was on a bridge in Prague, and it was in the Second World War, and that I was with my mum, we were walking across the bridge, and and the, the Germans, the Luftwaffe, were straightening the bridge with Stukas, and my mother lay on top of me to protect me. And when the aircraft had gone, my mum got up and there were a whole lot of dead people on the bridge. And this had traumatised, I mean, this is an extreme example of trauma, but this had traumatised this woman and she'd never developed the capacity to differentiate pitch. So she had struggled to understand the way people were talking to her her whole life. And this is exhausting. It's, it's yeah. exhausting, it's stressful, it generates anxiety. Um, so she saw me, she did a program with me, 
and then at the end she said, it's, it's so easy now. I care what people are saying to me. I don't have to try. <laughs> wow. So this can, happen really to, this can happen to children, you know, with something as insignificant as having chronic ear infections or losing a teddy bear or having, you know, mum and dad break up or moving house, moving school, you know. Mm. Amazing. And this can cause the child to struggle to appear to, to appear to have low attention, to appear to have, you know, attention deficit, when in fact they've got a difficulty decoding pitch and therefore understanding the way words are taught to them. So many, many teachers will like, you know, blah, 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 blah. Now pick up your pens, blah, 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 and do this, blah, 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 blah. It's like a sea of monotony for these kids. And they're not picking up the commands. And huh. so they're having to look around in class to see what everybody else is doing. If they're bright, they're going to do that. If they're sensitive, they don't want to look stupid. So mm -hmm. they're using every, every technique they can to camouflage their struggle. Um, but it wow. is a struggle. Oh, that you know what you, you just I just remembered something, Harriet. This, this is exactly what you're talking about. Is when I uh, started kindergarten in uh, Canada, I had just spoken Chinese only. I hadn't spoken any English, so I'm plopped into a kindergarten class where I don't speak English. You know? Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, and so you know, my mom was trying to you know chinglicize the you know words. Say, well, this means she wants to go to the bathroom. This means she whatever. So. Um, but I remember uh, ha like literally having to look around to see what everybody else was doing because I had no idea what the teacher was asking me yeah. and, or, or to do. Or, you know, and I was just terrified, absolutely terrified. I was a shy kid to begin with. So this terrified me uh, because I, they weren't speaking Chinese. I didn't know what it was. And, and it, just, it just, you know, just jogged my memory what you were just saying. Like, oh, my gosh. What you're saying is like it's like these kids not even though they're speaking the same language, it's almost as if they're speaking a different language. Exactly, exactly. And um, you, you know, you you had you had the journey of coming from Chinese, but you don't need to have had that journey to experience this pain and the anxiety and the stress that it imposes. Mm hmm. So, Harry, have you worked with uh, any like autistic children that have what they call? Um, just, I mean, not stim symptoms, but like sometimes they're super, super slow and they look like they're on slow motion. <laughs> look, I, I have worked with some autistic kids and I have worked with some that stim. Um, it's, oh, it's, a, it's, a hard, it's a hard client base. And um, my, my view of those in the spectrum is that there are two things that define them. Well, two main things that define them. One is that they that they struggle to fluidly interact with others around them. You know, they're often very good at um, telling you what's interesting to them, but they're not very good at listening back and fluidly interacting. Mm. And the second is there's a, a gut dysfunction. Mm. Um, and there are some clinics around the world that have a pretty good success rate with those in the spectrum by normalizing the gut biome because if you've got a problem digesting proteins most commonly um, 
gluten, wheat, wheat proteins or, or dairy proteins, then those can get through the gut wall in a process called leaky gut. And then if they pass the second barrier between the blood and the brain, they, these partly digested proteins get into the brain where they're neurotoxic and then you have to metabolize them and the byproducts are a natural opiate. So you, you then become intoxicated and then when you've metabolized <coughs> the, um, the, pro the, the protein, then, then you get withdrawals from the opiate. And so then you get grumpy. And some of these kids have these cycles of, you know, over, overactive, overhappy, and then grumpy. And this is just a normal for them. Um, but in, t in terms of the auditory stuff, yes, usually the children that I've seen in the spectrum have got disordered auditory processing and that's good work that we can do because it, it helps them massively to, to engage through how they hear and speak with those around them. But unless we can normalize the gut, the pathways that I can build in the brain and the, and the connections that we can build in the brain by normalizing their auditory processing. They can't use that until the gut's fixed. Because the oh, gut, that makes sense. If the gut isn't working right, it, it, it just engulfs. Mm -hmm. you know, we're constantly losing brain power. They're constantly going into what, what we call brain fog. You know, and often that's a daily occurrence. It's mm -hmm. something that's unusual. But, but if brain fog does occur, and it is unusual, what I'll say to mums is, um, this is you know, another part of being the detective, um, what has your child eaten in the previous 36 hours that's out of normal? Because therein may lie the clue why they've now got brain fog, because it's something they can't digest properly. Yeah, somebody, little Bobby had a birthday and they passed out uh, cupcakes or something. <laughs> well, yeah, it may be that or maybe they gone, they went to grandma and grandma fed them some breakfast mm. that was, you know, highly processed carbs. You know, the packet said it was healthy, yeah. um, but in fact, probably the packet was the most nutritious part of the, pack <laughs> the package. <laughs> Not what's in it. <laughs> well, yeah, I was I was raised on that because my parents, you know, came from Hong Kong to Canada, and they just pretty much bought what everybody else bought, you know, yeah, um, white bread and and uh, instant cream of wheat and uh, instant oatmeal and all that kind of stuff that they said was healthy. Well, well the instant we were... oatmeal was probably the best of the pick. <laughs> yeah, probably, and also they did eggs, so that was that was pretty good. Although I yeah. hated eating that, but. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So if someone has if someone has a child who, you know, teachers say, hey, they're misbehaving in in class, you got to do something, or they may even be, be so bold to suggest, you know, he needs medications, or you know, go see our doctor or psychologist. Like, what what strategy do you recommend to the parent at that point? Well, I think one really useful thing is for the parent to sit in the classroom if possible, and observe when these behaviours are triggered, mm. if, if they can do that. Quietly, just sit and observe, because often the teacher is so overwhelmed, they've been so undermined in terms of their social position and put under so much stress. I mean, in this country, um, teachers now have to 
um, do a thing called NAPLAN where they're standardized testing across the whole system. And the, 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 they're getting stressed about it. The kids are getting stressed about it. But again, it's, a, it's about being a detective. It's about understanding the why. If the child is stressed, if the child is behaving poorly in classroom, not doing what the teacher expects, there's a couple of things we can, we can conclude. Maybe the teacher's asking them to do something unreasonable for that child. Mm -hmm. So if this child has a need to move in order to pay attention because they're dopamine deficient, is there any way we can package up the educational experience so movement is part of that? Mm. And maybe as, a, maybe as a little kind of bonus, that actually might support 50% of their classmates because I agree. They, have, they have, you know, the same issue but in less less severe case. Um, and so there, there, there are some of the more enlightened schools that, that have brought back um, movement as part of the class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, I, my husband is, uh, you know, what they would have labeled uh, back then, uh, you know, ADD, uh, the learning disabled, you know, thing, things like that. But, you know, uh, his stepmom pulled him out of learning disabled class and said, you're smart, you don't belong there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he was bored. Uh, he was bored, and he just. But the thing is, is that uh, for these sensitive kids, um, they they need to move, like you just mentioned. Um, yes. Dopamine is a big deal, and they need to move. And and they getting st you know sitting still in a classroom away from nature for X number of hours a day just isn't conducive for the best results. You know, the best learning. So I I mean this just before this this. Um this call, I had I had a mum called Nikki who rang me up about her six-year-old, and she uh, the school the teachers have told them they do not want know what to do. Okay, mm. so this child had delayed speech, um, still a little bit unclear, um, conductive loss in the ear, so mm. there was a blockage in the middle ear. So they put grommets in last year. That helped. Behaviour has improved. They've been to a psychiatrist psychologist, they've been to an occupational therapist, they've been to a paediatrician. Um, that was the only thing that came out of all those engagements. Maybe he's got ADHD, maybe he's got sensory processing disorder. We'll put the grommets in and that's what we can do. Now the child is now defiant, runs away, hiding, not communicating, not engaging with learning. But when he, he's six-year-old, but when he goes out to grandpa's farm, he loves it. And he can tell you all the animal names. He can tell you all the patterns around the animals. Mm. So he's a bright boy. Um, and he's sensitive and he's anxious. And yeah. um, so I'm going to assess him next week, but I can pretty much guarantee he's got some issues around the way he's sensing the world. And if we think about... What teachers expect of children, they expect children to listen and they expect children to master written language. And if we think about the three senses that support the written language part, it's like sitting on a three-legged stool. To stay on the stool, um, we need those three legs to be solid and firm right. and reliable. So... <clears throat> Karen, how, how do we assemble language? I'm going to ask you this question. How do we assemble language? Well, it sounds like we just observe and um, 
model, you know, the, the, I mean, what our parents model, what we see around us. Um, but, but how did you acquire your Chinese language? I had to listen and then correct, react. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were just immersed in it. Yeah. You just listened to it and you learned it. So we're symbol language in the ear by listening with the auditory system. And then when you when you read, you use your eyes, of course. So right. the ears and the eyes have to work together. So if you're reading the word dad, you need to understand what that word, that spoken word means. So if you read dad and it sounds like, and you think sad in your head, you're not going to get the, the meaning of the sentence. <laughs> So you have to be able to decode the words verbally before you can read them. So if you're muddling up bad, sad, mad mm. in verbally, you're not going to be able to read them. Uh, and the third, the third thing that I see children fail in is if they muddle up, and I, I'm using bad, dad, sad for a reason. Um, if we have a child that's muddling up bad, dad, sad, um, pad and so on, words like that. They're muddling up the P's and D's. Mm -hmm. This is a pattern that's pretty common. P, D, B, Q are the, are, the, are the real culprits here. So if we have a child that's muddling up those particular letter sets, that tells me that their balance system needs work. So we would call them dyslexic here in the States. You would call them dyslexic. And what does dyslexia mean to you, Karen? Oh, that they get those things mixed up. <laughs> that's, that's so common. That is, that's, yeah, that's I mean, that's one. a symptom. You know, that's what we that's call them. But it's, yeah. to me, it's like, this, I, like this, this processing issue in the brain. That, I mean, that's how I simply simplify it or interpret it or explain it to people. But it's so a... If we were doing a video call, I could show you. But if, if you, um, have you got a pen and a piece of paper? I do. Yeah. So write down PDBQ on the bit of paper in front of you. Mm-hmm. And tell me when you've done that. Yes. Now turn, it, turn that piece of paper around so it's upside down. Okay, yeah. And what's happened to the order of the letters? It's opposite, and it looks yeah, like they've, a bunch of D's. <laughs> they've, they've, they've changed around, haven't they? Yeah. Now, what's the system that allows you to, to decode what's happened there? Can you, can you make visual? Suggest? So, yeah, yeah, a visual, visual and, and balance. Mm, interesting. Be because it's the balance system that allows you to flip that that single symbol that we have used for PDBQ. It's the same symbol. Balance system. I, I never really thought it would be a balance system. I'm thinking balance system, people are going to fall over. You know, I'm not really thinking about letters. That's right. Well, it's mm. the balance system that allows you to flip and rotate those letters. Isn't that fascinating? Oh so goodness. for me, the solution would be to train their balance, which is the cause, not the symptom. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Does this work for adults too? Because I know Absolutely. some adults say they have dyslexia. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so dyslexia really is much wider than, 
than muddling up letters. It's just a difficulty with written language. So if we have a, 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 discrep a significant discrepancy between verbal and written language, then there's an issue. There's a potential dyslexia. Mm. And it can, the cause can be one or all of those sensory pillars I've talked about. The auditory processing, the visual processing, and and the balance. And the balance. So those I, are like I, the three legs of the stool you were talking about? Correct. Correct. Mm. correct. So, you know, it's, if a child is struggling to read or if an adult is struggling to read, I mean, I, I put out quite detailed questionnaires and sometimes the mums, you know, oh my goodness, I can't do this. You have to go through the questionnaires verbally because they struggle to read. So there's often the, you know, the mini-me. So the child is yeah, <laughs> displaying the same symptoms as one or both of the parents. And if the parents have pushed through and learned to compensate and learned to work harder and delegate what they can't do and so on, then they often resent, you know, the child having a shortcut. Oh. <laughs> it's a bit sad, but they do. You know, I've done it the hard oh, way. They can learn up and do it too. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I can imagine that. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, what you're talking about, this, you know, the, these three important pillars, uh, you know, the visual processing, the auditory processing, and then balance. And I, I really didn't know what the third one was, you're going to say. Yeah. So it's balance. And then we actually did have three-legged chairs at home. Yes, it was the weirdest thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it was this dining room table, and you put all the chairs together, and it would be this completely round thing. Like, the chairs wouldn't stick out because they were rounded. But yeah, yep. we would often fall off these chairs. Um, yep. As children, <laughs> yep. like just because it was beautiful in design doesn't mean it was practical. But I was thinking also when you were mentioning this about um, my husband, because uh, when he was growing up, like I said, he would have been diagnosed with ADD or oppositional defiant disorder or whatever nowadays. Um, but back then they didn't kind of do that. They didn't have the funding for that kind of thing. Um, but he said he always had difficulty reading. Yeah. So he hated, you know, reading out loud uh, in classroom because he re read really slow and it took him a long time and he was very embarrassed, you know, that kind of thing. Even now when we, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll read similar books or the same and I'll read to him and then, and then at the beginning he says, why do I, I, I don't want to take a turn, you know, at the beginning. Yeah. And I was like, well, why not? And he goes, well, I, I don't read well and um, mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I am slow and I'm like, Oh, that's all right, you know, and so the funny thing is, is he naturally, and you can tell me whether this is related, he naturally is an amazing athlete, and he naturally loves um, hard sports that actually challenge his balance. So it's interesting, um, <laughs> whether or not he's got a weak balance system or not is possible. So often, if people are are very bright and they've got a determined character, they will work on a weakness till it's a strength. So there are, there are Olympic athletes who are skiers and skateboarders and so on who, who start off with a, a weak balance and they just wanted to master it. Mm. And they didn't feel... Mastering it gave them a sense of feeling whole and complete and, you mm -hmm. know, mastering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. but what you said about your husband, you know, I'll just go back back to my boy Lucas. Um, he he came back from you know his stint in Europe, 
as you know, the rite of passage we have here in Australia. And um, <laughs> he he started his business and, you know, very successful. But he's running a decorating business and one of his challenges was driving to an address and reading the street sign before he got to it. So he would be reading like your husband slowly. And right, right. He'd have to go past it before he could read it and then... Ugh do a U-turn and go back and so that was pretty inefficient. So he did a program with me and one, this is at 24 and one of the things that he reported is that I, I can read the street sign before I get to the street and I can turn off. <laughs> that is neat. Wow, that's great. So share a couple of stories maybe of um, like success stories that you've had from your, your practice. So there's the ones that stand out, you know, that, that you never forget. Like there was a son of a real estate agent and real estate agents, are, you know, tend to be pretty black and white and he was quite suspicious of, you know, his wife's intuition that something wasn't quite right. And this boy was at the bottom of the bottom maths class, mm. bright and sensitive. He went on a program and uh, when he went back to school, the following year, he went to the top of the top maths class. Wow. That was just amazing. Um, and that's not a typical result, and it's an extraordinary result. But for him, the only thing holding him back was his auditory processing. Now, for many of the kids that I see, there are multiple issues. It's not just one issue. And it's for that reason that, that the programs we use work on the vision and the motor and the balance as well because often those can be built stronger. But an, an, another part of what I do is I get everybody to, to draw a picture and the reason I do that is because drawing a picture engages so much of the subconscious that it can reveal, it can reveal fluidly and elegantly how a client relates to the world. And I, I have one of my highest flying clients lives half the year in Australia and half the year in Italy and Europe. And um, she, she, uh, she runs a course at Harvard so, and she consults to companies like Microsoft and Google and so on. So very high flying, wow. very competent. She came in to check me out to see if I was someone that was trustworthy, a trustworthy therapist to, to, uh, to entrust her children to. And she didn't come in to check out her performance, but to check out whether my assessment was thorough enough and whether I was you know, a trustworthy person. She did a drawing and I said to her, as a result of the assessment and her drawing, well, you know, I think there was something that went on with you in your childhood, around the age of 10 or 11. And she looked at me, you know, as if I, well, I don't know where you're coming from, Harry. That's just weird. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, you get the sense you've lost the trust. The connection's broken, you know. <laughs> you're, you're not going to see my grandkids. That's it. I thought, oh, well, okay, I've stuffed up. That's it. In <laughs> um, the next evening she rang me up and said Harry I've got to apologize to you for, for, for what I you know that interaction yesterday 
I realized what it was. Not only did I realize what it was, but I actually put it in my drawing. And then she described what it was. She had these terrible nightmares. And, you know, the, the drawings that I do with children come out of the psychology discipline. It's a standard test. It's called Hastry Person. It's a wonderful thing. I, I, I encourage you to look it up. That sounds cool. But the drawing I do with adults came from a guy called Bernie Siegel. And I had oh, a, I know Bernie. Not personally, but... I had a wonderful opportunity where he was running a webinar and it went for an hour and then there's half an hour for questions and nobody else had questions. So I had half an hour with him and he talked about drawings and he got all his cancer clients to do drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote a, well, he's, he wrote a book about it after Love, Myths, Miracles. He actually I wrote a book. book. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. So, so he told me about an, another way, you know, you, with adults you just ask them to draw their life. Mm. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes they reveal this magic. So, you know, we it's one way to build know, like, and trust. Get a drawing and reveal something that, that the client has forgotten about, but which is in the basement and still having an impact. Wow, that is fascinating. Now, um, what happens when, you know, people, like say you have a mom or dad, you know, that, that's interested in helping their child, they're having difficulty in school, they're maybe, after listening to this um, you know, interview, maybe suspecting, or maybe there is a visual processing issue, an auditory processing issue, and, um, you know, they do the quiz on your website. What happens after that? Well, if they're living far away from me, um, what we can do is schedule a Zoom call and we'll have a chat and see if we're a good fit. If we are a good fit, um, then I can offer a distance assessment where I'll send you know, a batch of questionnaires out and then we'll have, have a, uh, a Zoom call for as long as it takes to discuss the issues that come up from the questionnaires. And then if there is strong evidence that we can improve the auditory processing as well as some of the other processing I've talked about, then um, we can deliver a program to them to work on, on, on the, the client at home. Mm. If they're closer to, to me here, then um, of course they can come and see me face to face. But I've had lots of clients remotely, um, some as far away as England and Arabia, lots of people in Asia. So it's something we can certainly do um, over the internet it's quite easy video calling is wonderful oh yeah oh that's fantastic oh that's great um so i'm just going to just share with our listeners what your website is again so it's www.listenforlife.com so l-i-s-t-e-n the number four and then life.com, all one word. And uh, as you can see, that right on the home page, there's a little quiz you can do. And then uh, if you'd like to do a discovery call with uh, Harry, you can just click on the upper right-hand corner. It says Book Discovery Call right there. And then there's the schedule there. Um, and so people probably want to know, Harry, you know, how much is the discovery call? How much are your services? Like, Do you know, have some sort of guidance that way? Sure, the discovery call is, is uh, free, so I don't charge for that. Um, for an assessment, it's um, $350. Okay, sounds great. And it's so neat that, you know, that this kind of stuff we can do online now, <laughs> you know. Um, That's right. And, and, you know, 
becoming, if any of your listeners are prepared to accept my challenge to become a detective and then you discover some of the whys, what that will do will give you relief and then hope. Mm-hmm. And it will give you hope because then we can do something about it when we know the why. Absolutely. I love that. Well, you know, I think you and I are cut out of the same cloth, Harry, because I'm the why girl. <laughs> I'm the detective. I, you know, I'm always asking why and um, not like why me, but, you know, like I think that's just my personality. Um, I'm the one that helps people, you know, understand the why and see the bigger yeah. picture. And I think you do that, too. So this is so cool. Thank you so much, Harry, for being on the show today. This has been absolutely wonderful for our Light Warriors. That was a blast to talk to you, Karen. Really good. <laughs> Thank you for total having blast. me. Oh, yes. Oh, my pleasure. And then I know you're going to have a program coming up in the future, so maybe we can do another show at that time or we can help you, you know, just let people know about that. Um, So just stay tuned, everyone, and uh, just get on my uh, mailing list uh, if you want to know about that in the future at KarenCan.com. So thanks, everyone, for listening in, and thank you again, Harry. This was wonderful. Okay. Bye now. Bye now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.